Okay, come on up. Can come I sit in front? You can. Thank you. Hello, how are you? It'll fit. It'll can I sit in the pouch? Perfect. Alright, come on Hello. in. Hello, I just have to tuck your bag back here in the back. If you need to grab sure. anything out of there, you can. Hello. Hey, how are you? Good, yourself? Ah, the sound of folks getting set to take a float plane on a beautiful sunny day in Victoria, British Columbia. Puts you in mind of adventure, doesn't it? One thing I hadn't noticed before, though, is how much the deckhands talk about weight. So, Calvin, you got 34 pounds here. Okay, I had 24, so the total's going to be 58. My name is Ellen Kelsey, and you are listening to the fifth and final episode in our Hackeye Magazine podcast series on... Ballast! In this episode, we fly you to the top of some of the world's skinniest skyscrapers to look at how ballast is shaping the design of the future. Hope you're not afraid of heights. Back in 1904, the Wright brothers added 70 pounds of iron bars as ballast to their plane to shift the center of gravity forward. Adding ballast improved the handling of the plane so much that Wilbur Wright was able to fly the first full circuit of the airfield in Dayton, Ohio. At this point in our ballast series, you might not be surprised to learn that by adding weight to planes, we make them safer to fly. But as Preman Pilly explained, there's more to the art of ballasting than just stuffing weight into the baggage compartment. Um, what do you do here? I am a pilot for Harbor Air. I've been for about 12 years now. And what's the difference between thinking about how to ballast a float plane versus how to ballast a plane that might be taking off on a solid runway? Uh, it is quite similar actually they all have to be within their certain envelope of how the the manufacturer has designed the plane so uh, we just get a little bit better idea of how the plane is ballasted by a visual look uh, before we even do the bit weight and balance we can look at the plane and see that it's floating in a particular way or not so if we're looking at this plane right here in front of me which i think you're about to load right um yes. tell me talk me through that how is it ballasted right now right now it's it's completely empty maybe just a little bit forward because of the fuel in the front tank uh, but I can tell by looking at it that the, the heels of the floats are completely out of the water. So I know that's a good sign that the floats don't have a leak in them, as well as the, the bottom of the plane or the, the um, general stance of the plane is about even. And uh, usually when we're loaded, we get a bit farther aft. So uh, the back of the plane will squat a little bit more. Uh, we can move passengers forward and back. We do have a pretty good... Uh, envelope that we're allowed to use like on this I have a, a whiz wheel we call it but it's just an easy way to calculate where our weight and balance sits so it's just like moving um, a slide ruler around. So I'm having terrible flashbacks to high school math when I actually use slide rules <laughs> and I thought they were extinct <laughs> no, uh, and that you'd be brought it back or resurrected <laughs> it. Who knew? Harbor Air is using a circular slide rule, an instrument created in the 1600s, to calculate the weight and balance needed to ballast their planes. And they're not alone. Pilots all over the world still use them. 
officially called the E6B flight computer, WizWheels employ logarithmic scales to perform almost every calculation needed. Conversions, time and distance and fuel, wind calculations, and more. It's pretty impressive given that WizWheels are just simple circular cardboard and plastic disks that pivot around a center grommet. They can uh, do a, a quick uh, calculation on, as people climb in the plane or as the, the safety briefing is going, we do our calculation on where, where the weight of the plane is going to be. What Preyman is telling me is that much of the ballast on a float plane is, well, us. Which is why aviation agencies and large commercial airlines pay attention to how much passengers weigh. Like Transport Canada has a version of our body weight. So in the summertime, it'll be a certain weight for everybody, including their clothes and their average carry-on. And then in the wintertime, because they're wearing more clothes, they add a, a, about 10 pounds at a certain date just to, to, to take into account that people are going to be weighing more. And in terms of uh, different countries, people are different sizes. Yes, they are. So in Canada, we have our specific sizes, and they've have upped it a little bit as we, we get a little larger. So every maybe five years, it actually has gone up over like my course of my career. I've noticed that it has gone up. Well, they just changed the Canada Food Guide to be more plant-based. Maybe that'll make us all healthier. Maybe and a little bring bit. It, down. <laughs> it depends. Across the Pacific, engineers and architects working in an entirely different industry are also using ballast to help them design lighter, stronger structures up in the clouds. What's it look like from up there? Oh, it's wonderful. It's really wonderful. For me, I personally really enjoy heights. I think um, it's wonderful to have that kind of view. And uh, there is something interesting about going up that height in a building where it's more like uh, being on an airplane and when you're flying in on approach to a city and you're looking down and you can see everything. Benedict Trinell is an architect at a global architecture and design firm called Gensler. And what he is describing is the view from the top of Shanghai Tower, the second highest building in the world a building he helped design. Shanghai Tower stretches up 128 floors. That's more than half a kilometer, 632 meters to be exact, above the ground, in a densely packed city, on the east coast of China, where they have typhoons. You know, a very interesting aspect of uh, very tall buildings is that uh, wind is really the controlling factor for them. So as you mentioned, typhoons, uh, which generate some very strong winds, uh, dictate the engineering of the tower uh, structurally in a lot of ways. Very strong winds, hmm? What Penn is really talking about is this. Strong winds. Here's the latest. 165 kilometers per hour. Sustained winds has not struck the shores of Shanghai in over 30 years. So this is certainly a force to be reckoned with. Look at so how do architects and engineers make it possible for people to live and work in buildings rising up more than half a kilometer into the sky in gale force winds? Yes, ballast. You can make the building structurally sound, mm -hmm. uh, but it can still generate acceleration that people inside the building can feel and that makes them feel very uncomfortable. Ah, uncomfortable. That handy euphemism, like when the pilot says we're about to pass through some rough air. What Ben really means is... Scared. 
song is called Seasick by Silver Sun Pickups. We thought it would be appropriate to introduce this next section. Uh, and seasickness is exactly the sense that you feel when you, you feel this acceleration. And that's where ballast comes in. Architects work with engineers to add ballast counterweights to the top of very tall buildings. The weight dampens or reduces the rate of motion. The buildings might still move in the wind, but as long as the motion is happening slowly enough, it's not perceptible to the people inside. Sometimes I think there's a misperception that the damper is, is in any way related to the structural stability of the building, and that's not the case at all. That it, The building is incredibly stable and very well engineered. The damper is really just a, a way of keeping it um, in, in high wind conditions uh, so that you don't perceive the natural movements within the building. That's Dana Getman. She's an associate principal at Shop Architects. Think of mass damper ballasts like the weight in a grandfather clock. Engineers attach 300 to 800 ton pieces of steel or concrete on a floor near the top of a tower, adjusting the chains to balance them so they move out of phase with local winds. Like Ben, Dana knows about building tall buildings, but not just any tall buildings. Dana is talking about her work designing the world's skinniest skyscraper in New York City. In New York, the spiritual home of the skyscraper, a new generation of super skinny high-rises are changing the face of the city. Super skinny is on the rise. According to research carried out by the Skyscraper Museum in New York, there are 18 super skinny towers, either complete or currently under construction in the city. A building is considered to be skinny or slender when its height is more than seven times its width at its narrowest point. This seven to one height to width ratio was thought to be the limit for skinniness. Anything skinnier couldn't remain rigid enough to prevent its occupants from experiencing motion sickness in high winds. 111 West 57th blows those stats out of the water. This super skinny skyscraper is built atop the former home base of the famous Steinway & Sons piano makers. When it's completed, 111 West 57th will rise 433 meters tall. Its base is just 13 meters wide. That's narrower than a four-lane highway, creating a staggering height-to-width ratio of 24 to 1. What role does ballast play in enabling such an extraordinarily slim design? Well, it's it's definitely an important part of the design design process. I, I read somewhere it's like having a hundred African elephants worth of weight up there. Why yeah. does putting all those elephants at the top of a skinny tower make that tower not feel like it's moving? Another way you think about it for when trying to explain it to to a kids group once was if if someone's holding your your head down, it's very difficult to move. Whereas if they're holding your ankles. It's easier for your head to move. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) So what's the future of skyscrapers? Is there a limit to how tall they can become? That's a great question. Um, I think people have been speculating on that since the invention of the elevator, uh, which allowed us to build taller than what somebody could reasonably walk up in terms of stairs. Um, And, you know, you always think there must be some upward limit and Certainly that seems like it would be true, but um, I guess I, I won't speculate as to what You're not the, a betting the man. final height would be. <laughs> right, right. 
Wise not to bet, especially given the idea for an elevator on the moon extending into space, well over halfway to the Earth. Seriously, look it up, lunar elevator. But I digress. Ben believes lessons from building ultra-tall skyscrapers could influence more environmentally friendly building design in more down-to-earth everyday contexts. And I wonder if there's some technology uh, or adaptation of what we already know that we will uh, find some way to uh, make our buildings lighter and structurally you know, more efficient and using less material, uh, which is less embodied carbon and energy into the structure. While Ben is busy thinking about how ballast technology might improve the environmental impact of city construction, Singapore is seeking new ways to build skyscrapers on the sea. In an issue of Hakai magazine, David Adams describes how Singapore wants to build massive floating suburbs. Now Singapore is looking for another way to grow. Instead of building more land, the city wants to build on the sea's surface with a system of giant floating rafts tethered to the seabed. But first, engineers have to solve an important problem. How do we stop the rafts from wobbling? So David, that's really fascinating, this idea of building out onto the oceans. Do you think ballast might have a role in, in helping Singapore with its wobbly suburb situation? I, th- I I'm not a marine engineer, sadly, but I, I imagine to a marine engineer, these kind of giant rafts are themselves ballast. I think what they're doing is that they're, they're focusing more on ways to, to dissipate the energy from the waves. And I'm not sure a piece of ballast would do that. If it was attached to these floating platforms, I suspect it would just make it rise slightly higher in the water. Um, and, and then maybe maybe that might make the wobble worse. But um, I don't know, maybe they haven't thought of it. Maybe you should get in touch with them and suggest it, and you, you might solve their problem for them. Which brings us right back to the sea and ships. But do ships really need ballast? Remember back in episode two, when we talked about how most ships now use water to ballast their loads and how all those ships moving water from one place to another have created a real problem with invasive species? So perhaps it's no surprise that the real future for ballast at sea is, well, no ballast. That's right. The race is on to create a ballast-free future. The world's first ballast-free liquefied natural gas bunkering vessel is currently being built. When it's completed, it will supply small-scale LNG terminals along the Baltic Sea coast. The ship has an innovative hull design and other features that enable it to retain its stability without storing and transporting ballast water. Instead, local seawater is slowly circulated through trunks beneath the cargo area. Because the water is constantly circulating in and out, the transport of invasive species from one part of the ocean to another is reduced. And so we end our ballast series, right where we started, with ships moving vast cargo loads of stuff around the planet. And the ballast they do or increasingly do not carry, creating vast and lasting impacts on the world. We love stretching our exploration of ballast to include everything from stone-swallowing plesiosaurs to the metaphoric role of ballast in Nazi propaganda to the technological applications of ballast to the creation of the world's tallest skyscrapers. 
Podcasts are new for us. So if you enjoyed this series, be sure to rate and review the episodes and let us know what you think the next series should be. I'd like to heap a boatload of thanks on the folks who helped us create this episode. Preman Peely, David Van Ziegler, and Gus Alfrink at Harbor Air, Benedict Trannell at Gensler, and Dana Getman at Shop Architects. This episode of Ballast was produced by Katrina Pine and me, Ellen Kelsey. Our original theme music is by Tobin Stokes. The team also includes Jude Isabella, Adrian Mason, Mark Garrison, David Garrison, and our fact checker, Megan Osmond-Jones. Check out hackeyemagazine.com slash ballastpodcast for more on each episode. We are an endeavor of Hackeye Magazine and are produced next to the sea in historic downtown Victoria, British Columbia.